Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter, beginning at verse 14. Deuteronomy 17:14, and I'll read through the end of the chapter at verse 20. This is the word of God. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it, and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. This reading from God's law prepares us for our New Testament reading and sermon text in the 10th chapter of Luke, the first 12 verses, Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two and two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. And whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. And whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat what is set before you, and heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. 
Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing now upon this reading, upon our understanding of it. We confess to you our need for your Holy Spirit to bring light to our eyes and understanding to our hearts, that you may be glorified and your people helped. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Whenever I connect to the Internet, the very first page that comes to the screen is a Microsoft News page that, by calling it News, purports, you would think, to offer the significant stories developing nationally and internationally. That's what you would think. This past week, the headlines on this particular page informed me, on page one, that Prince Charles is planning to have tea with Donald Trump. Tea. It informed me that some airline in the Middle East offers the shortest flight in a certain aircraft. It told me that these locations, the article listed, are the ten best places to retire. Other so-called news headlines pose such teasers as the question whether some person named Winslow is going to testify in his own defense, whoever Winslow is, and whether Rihanna's fans are pronouncing her name correctly. All of these things are page one news. Beloved humanity at the beginning of the 21st century is drowning in a vast cultural sea of irrelevance. We simply don't know or maybe don't care what's really important in life. Because important things, no doubt, are happening in the world. They're bound to be going on somewhere. Things that citizens and taxpayers really ought to know about. Things that journalists, whose trade this is, really ought to be telling us. And our news editors offer us instead the latest on-stage misdeeds of Miley Cyrus. We should expect better reporting of news. Much, much better. I heard a radio ad not long ago advertising some business as a judgment-free zone. Advertising that as a virtue, as a selling point. When what we as a culture need is not less but more and better judgment. And the church, sad to say, has in many cases become our lost and drifting culture's willing accomplice. Pursuing the irrelevant, pursuing the marginal at the expense of the central and the weighty and the glorious. Beloved, what is the church's true center of gravity? That's what we should be asking ourselves. What is our center of gravity? On what message does the church of the Lord Jesus Christ either stand or fall? Well, it's the very same message as that on which humanity as a whole stands or falls. It's the gospel. The good news reinforced for us in verse 9 of today's passage. The Lord Jesus says, Wherever you, my ambassadors, go and are welcomed, eat what you're given, heal their sick, and tell them this. The kingdom of God has come near to you. 
That's the gospel. And it's no small thing. It's no privately held view. This is earth-shaking news, beloved. Talk about relevance. Relevance. This news completely reforms the whole world and our thinking in it and our thinking about it. It changes everything. The news that God's kingdom has arrived in power among us pulls the rug out from under contemporary journalism, contemporary politics, contemporary economics, contemporary everything. Since God's kingdom has now drawn near in the person of his anointed king, Jesus, the old order of things, the old order that dates all the way back to the days of Adam, it's passing away. The darkness of spiritual ignorance, the darkness of disease, dysfunction, death, all these things are going away. In Christ Jesus, our King, all things are being made new. As our passage this morning opens in Luke chapter 10, the Lord is making his way to Jerusalem for the last time. So Galilee is behind him. Samaria is behind him. He's already done what he came to do in those places. Before him now lies an ever-shortening road that takes him southward to Jerusalem through Perea, east of the Jordan River, and on into Judea. And about this time, he appoints 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Essentially, their message as heralds along the way, was that incarnate in Christ, the kingdom of God is coming to a city near you. But before outlining our way through this morning's passage, we really need to define, and more than that, we need to come to treasure as absolutely paramount, as the pearl of great price, this Basileia to Theou, the kingdom of God. Because it is our center of gravity. This is our gospel message to the world and for the world. Every other aspect of our life orbits around this one great sun that illuminates and warms the entire system of human thought and human relationships and human practice. The kingdom of God it's not a geographical expression. It's not like the United Kingdom or the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. This kingdom, of which Christ is king, this kingdom has no geographical limits. It has no boundaries in that sense. None. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Wherever in the world this news of his kingdom goes, and takes root in the hearts of men, men of whatever nation, kindred, tribe, or tongue, those men thrive. And their households stand to thrive with them. Whatever their outward circumstances may be, whatever persecutions they may face, in Christ they thrive. 
Because those men, converted and transformed by the power of the gospel, bear fruit. When the gospel speaks of the kingdom of God, it's not speaking of a place. It's speaking of the true factual condition of things, that God reigns. The kingdom of God is his sovereign reign, his rule over all things for his own glory and the good of those covenanted to be his. Now that's not everyone. It's not everyone. It's those he sovereignly and effectually calls out of the world by the preaching of the gospel to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We who once were not a distinct people at all have by grace through faith in this good news of his kingdom, we have become the people of God. We have become the covenanted people specifically of this one great anointed king who is our shield, our son. His reign over all things is central. It's the sum and substance of reality. It is. Over and over again, it's proclaimed in the Psalms, the Lord is King indeed. Let peoples quail and fear. He sits above the cherubim. Let earth be moved. The Lord in Zion rules and over all is high. Oh, praise His great and awesome name, the Holy One. He reigns. It was a theme of John the Baptist's preaching. Listen to him in Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He reigns. It became the theme of Jesus' preaching after John was thrown into prison. Matthew four seventeen. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom and reign of God. It was the central theme of his teaching, the central theme of all his parables. It was the challenge with which Luke chapter 9 closed and the announcement with which chapter 10 opens. In chapter 11, he teaches us to pray for the coming of this kingdom. It's joyous public recognition in every sphere of life. I elaborate this way (coughs) on the kingdom of God because his reign over us is our one true center of gravity. And not only in the church. It's our one true legitimate center of gravity individually. And as families and cities and nations and societies, if the kingdom of God hasn't captivated us, if it hasn't become for us the glorious, radiant center of all our thinking and practice, then however highly we may flatter ourselves, we're not truly enlightened at all. 
We're not even gravitationally bound to reality or reason. We live in fantasy world, a fantasy world where trivial things loom large and the truly glorious is suppressed or forgotten altogether. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and the gravitational pull of his kingdom, we are instead, in the words of the Lord's brother Jude, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And beloved, we all were there at one time. We were. We'd all bought into other things, bought into other ideas, other worldviews that offer no lasting comfort, no intellectual or spiritual satisfaction, because they offer no meaningful, cohesive, comprehensive answers. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we were back then, separate from Christ, excluded, strangers, having no hope and without God in the world. Hope misplaced, friends, hope misplaced is ultimately no true hope at all. Now I realize I'm prone to get myself up on a soapbox about this, but it's important, it's important. The golden calf of American political Economic, social life is that of democracy. Around this essentially religious concept, Americans eat and drink and rise up to play. As the demos, the people, we decide things for ourselves without reference to Christ, our true king and his published law. We carve out our own morality our own governance, our own views of work, marriage, the Sabbath, and everything else besides. Because according to this civic religion, we the people reign. The people rule. Power to the people. But no one can serve two masters. Neither can a nation, and each one of us, whether men or nations, we have a moral obligation to decide. Will it be Caesar or Christ? Will it be the laws of mere men or the law of the Lord? Democracy or the kingdom of God? It was the kingdom not of Caesar but of God these seventy heralds of the king went about proclaiming along the route he took to Jerusalem. And we naturally wonder, why does he appoint so many? Why seventy? Or as some texts say, seventy-two. Doesn't he already have twelve apostles? All of those twelve fit young men? Here he is, one man, going one direction to one destination along one road. Why so many people to tell the cities and towns along the way that he's coming? In verses 2 and 3, he answers the question, why? He answers it in two interconnected ways. First, there's the matter of the size of the harvest that lies ahead of them. It'll be great. 
It'll be great in number, great in public repute, great in public anticipation. And if you're inclined to doubt that, I invite you to read ahead to his arrival in Jerusalem described in Luke 19. There it says, as he was going, they were spreading their coats in the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This triumphal entry into Jerusalem represents in part the work of these 70 or 72 heralds, these advanced men going on ahead of Christ Jesus, our King. Great is the harvest, great the anticipation of his arrival. And of course, great is the worth of that harvest because it consists of the souls of men. Souls that are precious to God. For work like that, 70 heralds of the kingdom suddenly seems hardly enough. And in point of fact, such a number is hardly enough. Verse 2, he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The observation certainly applied to that moment of time and ever so many occasions of history since. The gospel work in the world is great. The harvest is great. So where are the people needed to gather the harvest in? Now the Lord doesn't pose this question in a merely rhetorical way. As if to say, shame on all you people for not stepping forward. No, he's not into guilt manipulation. That's not why he asks it. He's not into forced labor. He poses the problem. Shortage of workers. And then immediately to these 70 others, he offers the solution. Ask God to send them. across the world and across the ages. Ask God to send them. Beloved, maybe you'll be among them personally. Or maybe you won't. Psalm 110 reminds us that a willing people in thy day of power will come to thee. Thy youth arrayed in holiness like morning dew shall be. Some do the hard work of bringing in the harvest under the late summer heat and find satisfaction in it. Others do the more casual roadside gleaning afterwards. Whatever the work, whatever the personal expense or inconvenience, let it be that of a willing heart, beating within the breast of a willing servant and citizen of such a glorious kingdom. Now that we know why 70 heralds of the kingdom were needed at this point, the Lord goes on to tell us how we're to go about our work. 
Go on ahead of me, he says, with your announcement of my approach, and as you go, make sure you go trustingly, lightly, quickly, and peaceably. First, he says, go trusting me to care for you, because there's a real danger in it. Look, he says, be fully aware, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Whenever you preach against the prevailing culture, whenever you preach against the settled temper of the times with the intention of announcing instead the reign of God and the person of his king, whose word is law, you've become part of a long prophetic tradition that's strewn with the bones of the righteous. Do you love adventure? Do you have a taste for danger? Those are handy traits in a gospel preacher. Or do those factors make you shrink back as you consider them? Adventure, danger, and so on. Trust your sovereign king to care for you along the way. Trust him. Back in Daniel's day, he shut the mouths of lions. In your day, he can, if he chooses, do the same to wolves, shutting them down, holding them back with collar and leash, caging them. Or, as in the case of Saul of Tarsus, converting them. The outcome is in his hands. When he says, go, go trustingly. And then go lightly as well. Go lightly, unburdened by extraneous luggage. Don't take purse or bag or extra shoes because a worker is worthy of the wages he earns by preaching along the way. You'll need to go lightly because you'll be going quickly. I have an appointment in Jerusalem for which I will not be late. Go before me and announce that I'm coming. Take no time even to greet others and socialize along the way because the king's message is urgent. This gospel mission must not be allowed to bog down at any point along the way. And finally he says, when you go, go peaceably. Go with peace in your heart and a word of peace on your lips. You can't lose by being a blessing to others. Blessings of peace are never wasted. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Blessings pronounced on others are never wasted. For as long as you're in that or any town along the way, stay with men of peace. Bless the homes of peace. Encourage them. Build them up with news of this coming glorious kingdom, this new order in which the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in His wings. 
But this is dangerous business after all. Not every city along the road to Jerusalem is going to provide such a warm welcome. There are going to be cities that offer you no accommodation whatsoever. Not a single house of peace, not a single heart that welcomes the coming of God's kingdom. Jesus says, testify against them. Testify openly against them. If they won't have you and your message in their homes, take it out to the streets and tell them this, like it or not. Welcome it or not. Receive it or not. Be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The church's advantages today are many over those of the 70 sent on ahead with the message of his kingdom. But the long list of our advantages begins with this. That no longer does his principal work, the work for which he came, no longer does that work lie ahead of him. It's finished. He walks no more the dusty road toward a cross. Redemption accomplished. He reigns as king today upon heaven's throne as real, as substantial, as it is glorious. Amen.